Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs. Today's episode is episode 29, and we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 6 through 9. What will thou have me to do? To introduce this week's study of, of Come Follow Me, I just wanted to share a little bit of an experience I had back when I was teaching. Whenever I would teach about the plan of salvation, in particularly about the three kingdoms, the celestial kingdom, terrestrial kingdom, and telestial kingdom, in fact, I remember once I had a student, I always seem to get the, them mixed up a little bit, especially the terrestrial and telestial. I had a student say, oh, Brother Downs, the way that I remember is sea turtle, sea turtle, <laughs> celestial, terrestrial, telestial. I have used that so many times since then. I just thought, you know what, I'm going to share that with you because if you're like me, it's easy to get those last two mixed up, the terrestrial and telestial kingdom. So, but anyway, whenever I would teach about them, one of the things that I would often ask my students, I'd, I'd ask them to close their, their eyes, put their heads down so you know they weren't looking, and, and i just ask them as I went through each kingdom uh, to raise their hand based on what kingdom they thought they would go to if they were to leave this life right then and there. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely shocked at what I saw each and every time, and each and every time it was the same. I don't think I can remember one student ever raising their hand that they felt like they were going to the celestial kingdom. <laughs> and very few would raise their hand indicating that they thought they'd be going to the terrestrial kingdom. The majority would raise their hand for that telestial kingdom. And I was always so surprised that there were so many young people that were so quick to group themselves with the likes of murderers and adulterers and, and those that commit a host of other terrible, terrible sins, which is what the telestial kingdom and who the telestial kingdom is reserved for. And each and every time I saw this, I became more and more determined to change that mindset in the young people that I taught, which is one of the reasons I want to start out with this today. I know how you feel about yourself. I know how we all feel about ourselves. We often think of ourselves in the worst possible way and in the worst possible light. We are our own worst critics, and especially as young people. I know how often you beat yourself up for the mistakes that you make, for not rising to your own expectations or certainly to the expectations of others, and so therefore you think that the celestial kingdom is completely unattainable to you. Well, I want you to understand this truth as we get into this study this week. Do you remember, do you know what God's work in His glory is? Moses 139, look it up, mark it, memorize it. For this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So what does that say about God <laughs> if so many of us feel like we aren't going to make it into the celestial kingdom? To me, that says that he's not very good at what he does. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Hear that. Is God really not good at what he's doing? No, he is so good at what he is doing. And when we discount ourselves and our ability to achieve greatness in the celestial kingdom, we also discredit his ability and his power to help us to achieve exaltation and eternal life. 
And to help you come to believe this a little bit better and a little bit more, I want to give you one verse in particular that I have just absolutely come to love. And it's a small little statement that's made in it, but I think for me at least it's profound. And it's 2 Nephi chapter 33, verse 12. In this particular chapter, the, the great prophet Nephi is finishing his remarks. He's writing the, the last little bit of his testimony, of his counsel, of his direction and invitations to all those that will read the Book of Mormon. And he mentions that it's up to us to judge if they're true and that one day we will know that they are because we will stand face to face and see him and know that he was commanded to write the things that he wrote. And in that moment, though, he makes mention of this. And I want you to just think of this in context of who Nephi is. Everything that he has learned, everything that he experienced throughout his life as a prophet, as a witness of Christ and of God, all of the incredible knowledge and mysteries that have been revealed to him. Listen to this verse carefully and see if you can pick out a little bit of his viewpoint in how good God is at what he is doing. In verse 12, it reads, And I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. Did you catch that? Did you catch that little phrase? That many of us, if not all. After everything that Nephi had learned about the plan of salvation, about good and evil, about choice and accountability, and about everything that we are going through and experiencing on earth, he still had incredible hope. There was something, something that he knew, something that he learned that gave him hope that many, if not all, eventually will be saved in the kingdom of God. I don't know exactly what that all means and entails. He just knew something. He had a hope, the, the same kind of hope that we need to have and the way that we need to see God in his plan as incredible and amazing and as wonderful as it is and believe like Nephi clearly does that God is good at what he is doing. Now, that doesn't mean it will be easy and it doesn't mean that we won't have some difficult moments to go through and some consequences for the choices that we make and some stretching that God will require of us. But I believe that he's good at what he is doing and that he is heavily, heavily involved in your life and in my life. He's very, very aware of us, both our strengths and our weaknesses, our good choices and our poor choices. And he is doing amazing things in each of our lives to help move us along the path that leads to him and to eventually the celestial kingdom. Which is one of the reasons why I love these particular chapters so much. One of the, the key stories we're going to take a look at is the story of Saul. I absolutely love stories about change in the scriptures or anywhere, whether it's the story of Alma the Younger or Zeezrom, King Lamoni or Ebenezer Scrooge. Every story about a person that changes from bad to good gives me hope that I can change for the better as well. But what is equally significant in each of those stories is identifying how that change takes place so that I can then apply it into my life to help bring that change about in me. And one of the, again, the best stories of change that we can read in scripture and how that change happened is the story of Saul. Let me first give you a little bit of background to these chapters. The background of these chapters is as follows. If anyone seemed like an unlikely candidate for conversion, it was probably Saul. 
a Pharisee who had a reputation for persecuting Christians. So when the Lord told a disciple named Ananias to seek out Saul and offer him a blessing, Ananias was understandably hesitant. Lord, he said, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints. But the Lord knew Saul's heart and his potential, and he had a mission in mind for Saul. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias obeyed, and when he found his former persecutor, he called him brother. Boy, there's a few wonderful examples of change all interwoven throughout the story with Saul, with Ananias, and, and others. Before we get into that particular story, though, and part of, of these chapters, let's look at a couple just other key principles from this week's study. The first principle I want to take a look at is in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, that in many ways outlines the kind of qualities that need to be in an apostle or in an elder or really in any kind of person that has any leadership responsibility over others in the church. At this particular point in time, the apostles needed a little help and they wanted to find good men to help them spread the word and begin to build and continue to grow the church. And so in verse 1, they come together. In verse 2, it reads, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And I'm sure I didn't get all those names right, but it's the message that's found in here that I want to look at for our first principle. Notice and, and mark and highlight all of the different qualities that the apostles indicate are absolutely important and necessary for someone to be appointed over as a teacher and as a leader over the people. Things like filled with or full of the Holy Ghost, of wisdom, of honest report, full of faith. Now, why is this so important? Well, in this world of ours, especially today, there is no shortage of people who are willing to give you advice, who are willing to give you counsel and direction, who want to share their opinions with you of what you should do, of, of how you should act, of what you should think, of how you should vote, of all different kinds of things that are related to life. Everyone has a podcast. There's Instagram and Facebook and TikTok accounts that everyone has and shares their opinion again of what you should do. There are more self-help books out there than ever before. You can Google or YouTube just about anything you want an answer to and you will find something with somebody sharing something about it. And while on the surface, that may seem very good and in many ways can be incredibly helpful, it can also be potentially dangerous because how are you supposed to know who to listen to, who to follow? The prophet Joseph kind of struggled with this in his own little way when he said that there were so many people that were preaching early on in, in his life that he didn't know which way to go, which way to do. And he didn't have the internet or cell phones or YouTube or social media or any of that. Imagine how confused he would have been today. And that's why I believe teaching 
and teachers and the right teachers, finding the right teachers is more important and crucial today than ever before. Elder Holland once taught that for each of us to come unto Christ, to keep his commandments and follow his example back to the Father is surely the highest and holiest purpose of human existence. But then he said this, to help others do that as well, to teach, persuade, and prayerfully lead them to walk that path of redemption also, surely must be the second most important or significant task in our lives. Perhaps that is why President David O. McKay once said, no greater responsibility can rest upon any man or woman than to be a teacher of God's children. The Apostle Paul taught, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's why it's so important to be careful about those that we allow to direct our paths, and to be our teachers. It is vital that we are taught truth, that we're taught in the right way. And in a world where everybody is trying to teach, there is one principle in particular that I want to draw your attention to to help you to know who to trust to be teachers to you. King Mosiah, when giving instruction to his people about who should be chosen to rule and direct and and guide his people, gave the following direction and principle for them to follow in regards to those that they were to allow and that we should allow into our lives to be teachers. He said in Mosiah chapter 23, verse 14, And also trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, except he be a man of God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. Before I would ever listen to what anyone has to say, I would first take a look at how they live. President Hinckley himself has said, effective teaching is the very essence of leadership in the church. May I repeat that he said, effective teaching is the very essence of leadership in the church. Eternal life, President Hinckley continued, will come only as men and women are taught with such effectiveness that they change and discipline their lives. They cannot be coerced into righteousness or into heaven. They must be led And that means teaching. And so that's the first principle I want to share with you guys today, especially in the place where you're at and being young, you will have so many people that will want to give you advice and counsel and teach and direct you in your lives. Make sure that above all else, that you trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, as King Mosiah taught, except he or she be a man or woman of God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. Those are the kind of people you want to surround yourself with. Those are the kind of people that you want to have as teachers and directors in your life. Those that you want to receive counsel and advice from. Those are the qualities that you want to look for in those that you listen to. Which is one of the reasons why I love this first part where the apostles are beginning to call teachers and and ordain people to different callings and offices within the church. They knew what qualities to look for to make sure that that teaching remained as pure and as revelatory as possible. They needed to be full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, of honest report, and a host of other things. Great things to look for and recognize in those that we allow to direct us. 
That's one of the reasons why I love the brethren so much. That's the way I see them. That's the way I feel about them. I know that they are men of God, that they have followed after his ways and kept his commandments. And so I trust them to lead and guide and direct me and my family. And this is also something that you can apply to yourself. You will have countless opportunities to be teachers to others and to direct others in their lives. And if you want to do that effectively, well, you need to be that kind of person yourself and develop those kind of qualities in who you are. Remember that in order to lift another soul, you first need to be standing on higher ground. Now, a few questions to consider and contemplate and discuss as it relates to this principle. Number one, who do you trust right now to be a teacher in your life? And number two is why? What qualifies them to earn your trust as a teacher? Number three, how can you best tell that someone is qualified to be your teacher? What are some of the things that you can look for to make sure that you allow the right people into your life to lead, guide, and direct you? What does it really mean to you to trust no one to be your teacher except he be a man of God? Another question might be, in what ways might you have the opportunity in your life to teach others? And how does this principle then apply to you? What does it mean to you to become or to be a man or woman of God? And how can you better walk in his ways and keep his commandments so you can better teach others with power? And lastly, how does this apply to prophets and apostles? Why are they so important to follow and to listen to? Now, principle two, let's go to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. In these verses, Stephen begins to teach and testify against some of the sins of the people. And he's pretty harsh in his delivery. In verse 51, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them? Which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers? who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gashed on him with their teeth. That old principle that Nephi taught in the early part of the Book of Mormon, that it's the guilty or the wicked that taketh the truth to be hard, that is always a clear indicator of when there is a problem. And you know what? That's a good place to pause and just to do some self-reflection. I can see that in myself, and I hope you can as well. When your parents or your leaders or anyone else, friends even for that matter, point out things that you know might be wrong in you and in your life and maybe in things that you're doing, have you noticed how quickly you are to defend that? How angry you get when somebody points out something that you're doing wrong? I've always used that as a way to measure whether or not I was doing something wrong. Because if I wasn't, it really shouldn't bother me. But if I am and I know it, it hurts. It cuts to the heart. And by recognizing that, I'm able to diffuse some of that anger. And instead of pointing it out at others, I'm able to turn it to myself and take a little bit of a a deeper look into myself and into the things that I'm doing and hopefully being able to recognize that, yep, they're right. (laughs) I need to make some changes. That takes a little bit of time and practice because, again, it is absolutely normal to have our initial reaction be anger 
when things are pointed out that we're doing wrong. And this clearly is what's happening here. So much so that look what they do in the next verses. Verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now these are some great verses for you young people to mark in particular, because they teach the doctrine that the Father and the Son are separate individual beings. We see that here in the Bible. The majority of the Christian world out there struggle with that concept. They believe that God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost are literally one entity. That God basically manifests himself in different ways, but that they are the same and that they are one in that way where we know that they are, yes, they're one in purpose, but they are three distinct separate beings. That is a doctrine that by and large the Lord, the world does not know and understand. And as you go out as missionaries, this will be an important verse for you to share to help them begin to see the truth of that doctrine. And why is that important? Well, as the prophet Joseph Smith taught, if men don't comprehend God, they don't comprehend themselves. So the more clear we can become as to who God is, what he looks like, how he acts, his character, all those things, it helps us to better understand ourselves and our potential to be like him. So again, here he sees them as separate. And in verse 7, the people, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Basically, Stephen was killed there. He was stoned to death by those that he was trying to help and to reclaim because, well, they were guilty of the sins that he had been calling them out on. And they didn't like it, and they were angry, and they wanted to, to silence him, and they did. And one of the reasons why I wanted to share this as one of the key principles is because sometimes the Lord allows bad things to happen to good people. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves of this. Just because we choose to follow Christ doesn't mean that we'll always have things easy. Doesn't mean things will always work out. Doesn't mean there will always be happiness and joy or that we won't ever experience pain or heartache or have things that just don't go right. It reminds me of Abinadi, right? So many great stories in scriptures where prophets are delivered, where Daniel's delivered from the, the lion's den, David from Goliath and Alma and Amulek from prison. There's just so many examples of this. But then there's the example of Abinadi, who wasn't, and instead was allowed to suffer death by fire. But I love his faith. In Mosiah chapter 13, verse 9, as he begins to finish his message, he says, But I finish my, my message, and then it matters not whither I go, if it so be that I am saved. He understood that sometimes life works out and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God saves and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God delivers and sometimes he doesn't. Elder Dennis E. Simmons of the Seventy taught this very powerfully in a talk titled, But If Not, when he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship a golden image set by the king, a furious Nebuchadnezzar, told them that if they would not worship as commanded, they would immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? 
Well, the three young men, and I love that these are young men. I, I, young people, I hope you can see that even at your age, you can have incredible faith and incredible power can be yours. That the three young men quickly and confidently responded, If it be so, if you cast us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand. I love their declaration of faith. But we really see how strong their faith is in their next statement. But then he said they demonstrated that they fully understood what faith is when they continued. But if not, we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That is a statement of true faith. Yes, God can deliver us. And we know that he can and will if he chooses to. But if not, that's not going to change what we do or how we feel, or what we believe. They knew that they could trust God, even if things didn't turn out the way they hoped. They knew that faith is more than mental assent, more than acknowledgement that God lives. Faith is total trust in Him. That's not always easy, but that's the kind of faith that all the greats have exhibited all throughout Scripture, from Stephen to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith is believing that although we do not understand all things, that he does, that God does. Faith is knowing that although our power is limited, his is not. Faith in Jesus Christ consists of complete reliance on him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew they could always rely on him because they knew his plan. They knew that he does not change. They knew, as we know, that mortality is not an accident of nature. It is a brief segment of the great plan of our loving Father in heaven to make it possible for us, his sons and daughters, to achieve the same blessings he enjoys if we're willing. They knew, as we know, that in our pre-mortal life we were instructed by him as to the purpose of mortality, that we will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So there we have it. It's a test. The world is a testing place for mortal men and women. When we understand that it's all a test administered by our Heavenly Father who wants us to trust in Him and allow Him to help us, we can then see everything else more clearly. The truth is we must develop the same kind of faith as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same kind of faith as Stephen, that yes, God can and will do great things. But sometimes he will allow pain. Sometimes he will allow suffering. Sometimes he will allow injustices and things that aren't fair. And sometimes he will allow death. Our God will deliver us from ridicule and persecution. But if not, our God will deliver us from sickness and disease. But if not, he will deliver us from loneliness, depression, or fear. But if not, our God will deliver us from threats, accusations, and insecurity. But if not, He will deliver us from the death or impairment of loved ones. But if not, we will trust in Him. We will trust in the Lord. Our God will see that we receive justice and fairness. But if not, He will make sure that we are loved and recognized. But if not, we will receive a perfect companion and righteous and obedient children. (laughs) But if not... We will have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that if we do all we can do, we will, in His time and in His way, be delivered and receive all that He has. Remember, as Elder Holland taught recently, real faith, life-changing faith, Abrahamic faith, 
is always in crisis. That's how you find out if it's faith at all. And then he said, I promise you that more faith will mean less crisis until finally God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Just a little bit of a thought. I I think it's important that we recognize at times these kinds of events as they unfold, where things don't always work out. Because obviously the scriptures are full of incredible examples where miracles happen, people are delivered, and amazing things take place, and God shows up for his people. But occasionally there are things in which he doesn't, where he allows the suffering, where he uh, allows death and things to not go the way that we would want. And I think it's important for all of us, especially you young people, to recognize that. The faith to be faith means trusting in God that, yes, things can and will work out. But if not, that that will not change what we believe, the faith that we have in God, and how we live our lives. Stephen, as one of the first martyrs in the early church, exhibited that kind of faith and trust in God. And even in the final moments of his life, not to lay the sins of his death at their charge. Now, a couple of key questions for you to consider from this particular principle. One might be, what has been something that you have gone through that by all accounts wasn't fair or isn't fair, or that you could easily be upset at God for? Why do you think he allows bad things to happen to good people? What keeps him from intervening in our lives and fixing our problems whenever we have them? How can you apply the but-if-not principle in your life with something that you're currently experiencing? And why do you think that faith, in order to be faith, needs to be in crisis? Boy, those are some deep and powerful questions to consider and to discuss, and, and I hope that you'll take the time to do so. For the last principle today, principle three, I want to take a look at basically Acts chapter nine, which is the conversion of soul, which was alluded to in the very beginning, the introduction of this particular podcast and of just the Come Follow Me curriculum in general. I want you to begin by taking a look at verses one through four and just get a brief glimpse at the kind of man Saul is and the kind of life that he has been living. It's become clear that he has been breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Okay, this is not a good man right now. He is not living his best life. He is going out, seeking out the disciples of the Lord. In verse 2, men and women, that if he finds, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now, as you know, Saul is about to go through a transformation and change. And I just want to again take another opportunity. Why does the Lord use such extreme examples? Alma the Younger is another example. He had been involved in some terrible, terrible things. We don't know the extent of it, but he had basically said he had been involved in the, the, the spiritual murder of God's children, leading them away from him and from the church and from the light. Through his example, through his words, he went about seeking to actually destroy the church. Now, I don't know how many of you young people have done that. I would bet to say that probably not many of you have. Not many of you have been in the same situation as Saul, where you're seeking out God's people and his children to bring them bound, to throw them in prison, to kill them. Now, why does God use such extreme examples? If it isn't to give you and I hope that even as bad as we think we are, that we can hope to change and to become better because that's how good God is. 
Well, along the way, he hears a voice, sees a light that simply says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That's in verse 4. To which he says, Who art thou, Lord? The response, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Saul then asks, What will you have me to do? Well, for three days, three nights, he was without sight in verse 9. Verses 10 through 13, Ananias is instructed to go to Saul. And this is where he says, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. But here Ananias gives space for others to change, even those that he has heard of that are, are as terrible as they could possibly be. The Lord says unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he says this, which I think is very interesting in verse 16, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Interesting that the Lord didn't say how great things he must do for my name's sake. It's he must suffer. Sometimes, and a lot of times, following Christ is the hard way, the difficult way. A way that leads through the path of pain and suffering and challenge and difficulty. But that's a part of the testing that we've all come here to experience and to go through. But again, one of the first great principles is the importance of giving people the opportunity to change and to repent, just like Ananias did. Speaking of this, Elder Holland, in an incredible talk titled, The Best is Yet to Be, said, There is something in many of us that particularly fails to forgive and forget earlier mistakes in life, either our mistakes or the mistakes of others. It is not good. It is not Christian. It stands in terrible opposition to the grandeur and majesty of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Let people repent. Let them grow. Believe that people can change and improve. Is that faith? Yes. Is that hope? Yes. Is that charity? Yes. Above all, it is charity, the pure love of Christ. As you know, this story, Saul changes. He turns his name to Paul and becomes one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. Paul goes through this change. Verse 18 says, Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forwith and arose and was baptized. And straightway in verse 20, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. <laughs> I love this story of change. In addition to giving others the opportunity and space to repent and change, we need to also give ourselves the space and grace and opportunity to change. Brad Wilcox reminds us that yes, God loves us as we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us this way. I think that's an important way to love ourselves as well, to love who we are, to love us with our strengths, our weaknesses. This is just who we are, but also love ourselves enough to not want to stay that way, to want to continue to grow and to improve. Elder Scott taught some wonderful principles and truths when it comes to change and the things that we sometimes go through in order to bring that change about. He said, just when all seems to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously. When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they're evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. 
Oh, great. Perfect, right? <laughs> but I don't want to grow anymore. Well, that's not the plan we signed up for and not the program. Elder Scott continues, He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. Now, to get you from where you are to where he wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. But Elder Scott also balances that out with the truth that God, who loves us perfectly, will not let a single moment more of pain or suffering happen than is absolutely required for our growth and for our good. Sometimes if we refuse to move, which I've been there, I've done that, I have a feeling you have and you will as well, God will find a way to gently prod us along. And sometimes not so gently, which is where I would encourage you to mark the phrase, kick against the pricks. See, a prick in the student manual for the New Testament refers to a goad, which is a sharp spear or stick used to poke animals to make them move ahead. (laughs) You see the imagery there and why the Lord uses kick against the pricks? He had clearly been trying to get Paul to move forward a little bit, but Paul was fighting against God. He didn't want to move. He liked who he was. He, he liked the position that he had. He liked what he was doing. And he was fighting. He was kicking against the pricks. Rather than move forward, stubborn animals sometimes kick back to retaliate, literally kicking against the prick. Such a reaction only adds distress as the animal incurs more painful prompting from its master. The Savior is making clear that if Saul continues to fight against him, he will only bring greater distress upon himself. In Greek literature, kicking against the pricks was a well-known metaphor for opposing deity. (laughs) Isn't that so good? That imagery, that metaphor. How many of us have been in a similar situation where we didn't want to move forward? We didn't want to, to change. We didn't want to go through an experience. And so what do we do? We kicked back. (laughs) and it was painful and brought even greater distress. We were kicking against the pricks. Remember President Nelson recently encouraging us to adopt the mindset and the meaning behind the term Israel? And Do you remember what that was? It was and is to let God prevail. (laughs) Let him win. Stop fighting him. Stop wrestling with him. Stop kicking against the pricks. Because when we fight against him, we will experience our own pricks and distress. God is good at what he's doing and he can get us from where we are to where we need to be. He will bring us into the celestial kingdom if we just get out of our way and we stop fighting him and stop kicking against the pricks. But even when we do, that distress and that additional pain and discomfort serves a purpose. Eventually, the hope is, that we will begin to move forward and change for the better. And I, that's one of the reasons why I love these stories of change, because it gives me hope that even when I'm fighting it, even when I don't want it, even when I'm kicking against the pricks, God continues to be there. And he can take even the very worst of us, the Sauls, the Alma the Youngers, the Ebenezer Scrooges, and change them, transform them into something incredible and amazing. And if he can do that with them, Well, he can do it with me. Now, a couple of key questions for you to just consider and reflect on and potentially discuss. Number one is, how have you felt the Savior's love for you in your life? 
You need to see that. You need to recognize it so that you know that he's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you and lead you along. Number two, when have you felt the Lord trying to move you forward? How have you felt the Lord trying to change you? And what have been some of the pricks that you have experienced in him trying to change you? What have been some of the ways that you've fought against that change and have refused it and not wanted to allow it to happen in your life? And then the last question, how can you better let God prevail in your life at this particular point in time? What is it that you're currently wrestling him with or refusing to move forward on or even worse, kicking against? (laughs) Hopefully some of these thoughts and principles have been helpful to you. These chapters are full of incredible principles and thoughts and verses for you to, to see and to mark, many of which are all about change. And that really is what the Come Follow Me program and curriculum is all about. Remember, that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And He invites us all to change, and to come follow me. So let's follow him better this week and change for the better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.